Africa rise and shine Africa tuza Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa and Tabiso Lohoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Some opposition parties in South Africa have mixed expectations from President Cyril Ramaphosa's address during a joint sitting of Parliament tomorrow. The global pharmaceutical company enters into non-exclusive voluntary licensing agreements with two leading generic manufacturers to expand patient access to Dorvarin, a medication used to treat HIV. And in economics news, the World Bank approves $12 billion in new funding for developing countries to finance the purchase and distribution of potential COVID-19 vaccines, tests and treatments for their citizens. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent. And impartial. From an African perspective. Amen, Musa. Good morning. At least nine civilians have been killed in the Mopti region of central Mali. Officials are blaming the attack on Al Qaeda linked jihadists. The attackers on motorbikes and in 4x4 vehicles opened fire in Sokora village, who are from the Dogan ethnic group. Separate reports say several Malian soldiers were also killed. Last Friday, nine civilians were killed in the Dogan village in Sagao region, and 22 others were abducted. Violence between the Muslim cattle herding Fulani and the mostly farming Dogan community have been fueled by the growing presence of Islamist militants in Mali. South Africa's Electoral Commission says it would welcome the fast implementation of the Party Political Funding Act ahead of the local government elections next year. The Act will enable transparency in the private funding of political parties, the IEC says. It's waiting for President Cyril Ramaphosa to decide when the Act will be implemented. IEC's Chief Electoral Officer Saima Mubulu says the Commission is also ready to administer the voting process and is working on measures to adhere to health protocols due to the coronavirus pandemic. It is important, therefore, that in our planning we take account of the fact that the pandemic itself might still be ravaging. To that extent, we've been in discussions with uh, political parties, we've been in discussions with uh, the Department of Health to agree on a minimum set of measures that are required to be implemented in the voting stations to obviate the possibility of those voting stations serving as a point of contagion uh, for the virus. Nigeria's police chief Muhammad Adumau has ordered the unconditional release of all demonstrators arrested during protests against police brutality. He's also banned the use of force against them. This was a key demand of protesters who've rallied against the hated special anti-robbery squad in major cities for seven days. The BBC's World Ross reports. Clearly feeling the pressure from those calling for reform and sensing the danger that this protest movement could grow fast, Nigeria's police chief has made concessions and promises. It's not yet clear if Mohamed Adamu's order to release all those who've been locked up for taking to the streets is going to stop the mass action. In an unusual statement, he also said the protesters' concerns were genuine and promised they'd be addressed by the government. Amongst those who've been risking the police beatings or even shootings are many extremely angry young Nigerians. Police in Thailand have arrested 21 protesters following a clash on the eve of the latest planned anti-government demonstration. Protesters are calling for a new constitution and the removal of the prime minister. They've also called for curbs on the powers of the monarchy, breaking a long-standing taboo against criticizing the royal family. The royal palace has given no comment on the protests or demands for royal reform. 
And finally, an online climate change summit for journalists from English-speaking countries in Africa kicks off. The Media and Journalism Days in Africa event will provide a platform for journalists, environmentalists and various organizations to share ideas and knowledge to promote sustainable development, Corbin August reports. The climate change activists say they used today's protest to call on government to start developing plans for more renewable energy sources in South Africa. They say government should transform the economy and build a more socially and economically just society that emits less carbon emissions. Similar protests also took place in Mitchell's Plain and Kayalicha. The demonstrations are part of a global wave of climate change protests which took place today with activists around the world calling for urgent action to be taken in order to mitigate the effects of climate change. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. First up in our sports update, I'm Figure Lungwati. We begin with squash news. Top seeds JP Bretz and Alex Fuller are preparing for three days of supercharged squash when the Growth Points SA Nationals Tournament is contested at the Brooklyn Mall in Pretoria starting on Thursday. Following the regional qualifiers played last weekend, the eight best women and men in the country will clash on the all-class court for the honor on being crowned South African champions players. Bretz, who overcame an injury in the build-up to the regional to qualify through the Northern Hub and Western Provinces, is looking forward to the tourney. It's really a great experience for us. Uh, I think as a sportsman, that's what we, we train to do every day, is to get on the court and be competitive. So after having such a long time off, to be able to have a tournament scheduled for us and we have a date where we can step on court and compete, that's something we can't wait to do. On to football news. Joachim Lowe's 14-year reign as Germany's head coach is under pressure after his side's run of poor results continued as they had to come from two goals down to limp to a 3 all draw against Switzerland in the Nations League. Germany have drawn four of their last five games, surrendering the lead on three occasions to leave them second in the Nations League group behind Spain. They squeezed past Ukraine 2-1 win with a full-strength side in Kiev on Saturday and after a three-all draw, friendly home draw against Turkey last Wednesday, Lowe's side were once again guilty of poor defending. The 60-year-old Lowe has a German FA contract until the 2022 World Cup. World number one, Dustin Johnson has pulled out of this week's CJ Cup after testing positive for COVID-19. A 36-year-old American who last competed at September's U.S. Open notified tour officials he was experiencing symptoms and was administered a test, leading to his withdrawal from the Las Vegas event as he begins to self-isolate. Johnson has had a sensational year, winning three times and taking home his first FedEx Cup championship at Eastlake last month. He was also named PGA Tour Player of the Year for the second time. J.T. Poston will replace Johnson in the C.J. Cup field. That's your Sport News this hour. Thank you, Figure for that sports update to 7.08 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Some opposition parties in South Africa have mixed expectations from President Sul Ramaphosa's address during a joint sitting of Parliament tomorrow, which is Thursday. These include how government will intervene to avoid the collapse of the SABC, ESCOM, and to address the unemployment crisis. The President has written to the National Assembly Speaker, Tandi Mudise, calling for the joint sitting to outline the country's economic reconstruction and recovery plan. Mercedes Percent reports. President Cyril Ramaphosa says the country has to take extraordinary measures to ensure a speedy and sustainable economic recovery. DA spokesperson on finance Jordan Hill-Lewis says what the country needs is an economic reform tracker to hold government accountable instead of more economic promises from the president. The DA has officially launched its economic reform tracker yesterday. 
The purpose of this tracker is to hold the government accountable to the many promises that they've made over the last two years since President Ramaphosa's election as president to wide-ranging economic reform. And yet very little progress has has been made on any of those uh, promises. So instead of more plans and more promises, we are going to hold the government to account for the promises that they have already made to reform our economy and our country to get South Africa growing again. But it is no good to just talk about those reforms. The government must make progress. And that is why we are launching this tracker so that we can keep track of exactly what progress is being made on reform and hold the government to account where no progress is being made. IFP MP and spokesperson on finance and public enterprises, Inkosi Mzamo Butelezi says one of the main issues in the president's address should focus on how government will tackle corruption. South Africans' problem does not need many plans and strategies, but a will to address the real problem, which is the rot that is in the system. For example, recently, Billions of friends were allocated for COVID-19. The president himself promised people of South Africa that monies won't be embezzled. But guess what happened? Monies were stolen. The only plan that we expect from the president is a plan to deal with corruption, and that's all. The Congress of the People wants the president to speak about SABC, ESCOM, unemployment and how the current racial tensions will be addressed in the country. COPE spokesperson is Dennis Bloom. We want President Cyril Ramaphosa to address in his economic recovery plan the unemployment crisis, the SOEs that is falling apart, especially ESCOM and the South African Broadcasting Corporation, SABC. We want him to tell us how he is going to address the corruption crisis in the country, the racial tension that is building up in the country needs urgent attention. UDM Chief Whip Nabayomzi Kwankwa and Member of Parliament's Finance and Public Enterprises Committees says the President should also touch on the restoration of investment from the private sector, unemployment and the energy crisis. Our view as the United Democratic Movement is that any recovery plan that is worth its salt should speak to first and foremost job creation. It should seek to address job creation as millions of South Africans are unemployed and millions more have lost hope about ever being able to find a job. You will recall that more than 4 million South Africans even lost their jobs during the lockdown. The President's recovery plan should also contain ways in which this government is going to ensure that it encourages the private sector to do away with its investment strike so that they can start investing in the economy. The third issue which we think for us is of critical importance is that you cannot even dream of reigniting the South African economy if you have not addressed the energy constraints that continue to beset the South African economy. Both members of the National Assembly and the National Council of Provinces will come together during the extraordinary joint hybrid sitting of Parliament. That report by Mercedes Besant. Zimbabwe's main opposition party, the Movement for Democratic Change, led by Nelson Chamisa, has declared its books are in the black after a 2019 public audit. Despite losing nearly $7 million to their rival MDC led by Togozani Kupe, the party has remained afloat owing to contributions by a steady support base and donations. This is the first time such an audit has been made by an opposition political party in Zimbabwe, putting pressure on government and the ruling party ZANU-PF to declare their financial status. Simon Machema reports from Harare. Following the decision by government to divert political parties' funds meant for the Nelson Chamisa-led Movement for Democratic Change, MDC, to Tokozani Kupe, the party has remained afloat. This was revealed in the capital Tuesday when the party treasurer, General David Coltard, presented the 2019 financial audit report. MDC becomes the first opposition party in Zimbabwe to have offered to have its books audited in a bid to show levels of transparency and accountability. According to the report, the bulk of the funds came from the government owing to the existing Political Parties Act. This is a law that forces government to pay any political party that would have garnered a certain number of votes 
in a general election. David Coulthard had this to say regarding the financial state of his party. So these accounts show that we were in the black at the end of the year. Uh, obviously with the cutting off of government funding, and I stress illegally this year, this is a complete breach of the Constitution and the political party's finance act. The cutting off of that money with a membership support base running into hundreds of thousands and the transferring of that money to a political party that at best has 45,000 supporters had a critical effect, a damaging effect, obviously on our cash flow. But I'm happy to report that because of the rejuvenization of, of our party and our new website and other things that the SG and I have been working hard on, we are back in the black. MDC has had its own fair share of challenges recently after the Supreme Court ruled that Nelson Chamisa's rise to power after Morgan Changra's death in 2018 was unconstitutional. This resulted in funds meant for Chamisa's party to be diverted to MDC led by Tokozani Kupe. Coltat explained. The funds referred to in this document are public funds that were, were handed to the party in terms of the Political Parties Finance Act. And we are going back to the public primarily to say that these are your taxpayers' monies that you worked hard to generate. This is how we spent them. And in doing this, we are saying that when Advocate Nelson Chamisa is president of the Republic of Zimbabwe, we will apply the standard that we are applying to ourselves, to every public institution and to our nation, so that state funds are correctly accounted for and properly spent. For the last 40 years of ZANU-PF government, we have seen the squandering of our wealth, where a tiny oligarch has become obscenely wealth, wealthy on the backs of poor people. But how has that happened? Because they have not been held accountable. They have squandered state resources, national resources for their own benefit at the expense of the people. How do we as a party intend tackling that? Well, it's a, a basic principle that charity begins at home, that we have to be the change that we want to see in society. The financial audit by MDC is the first of its kind in the history of Zimbabwean politics, a feat that has not yet been done even by the ruling ZANU-PF. Fadzai Mahere, the party spokesperson, demanded accountability on the ruling ZANU-PF and government. Now many have noted that no other political party in Zimbabwe has subjected itself to a public audit. This is true. As the MDC Alliance, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. As a government in waiting, transparency and openness are at the heart of our financial affairs. In Arare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September, 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus COVID-19 for Channel Africa in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, I'm Coletta Wanjohi. Once contaminated, hands can transfer the virus to your eyes, nose or mouth. From there, the virus can enter your body and make you sick. 
It's 7.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. The global pharmaceutical company MSD has entered into non-exclusive voluntary licensing agreements with two leading generic manufacturers to expand patient access to Doravirin, a medication used to treat HIV. According to the Joint United Nations Program on HIV and AIDS, 38 million people were living with HIV worldwide at the end of 2018, most of them in low- and middle-income countries. Countries. Under the MSD agreement, more than 80 countries will have increased access to Dorivarin. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Naren Rao, Director of Policy and Communication in Sub-Saharan Africa at MSD. Naren, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning and good morning to the listeners. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, firstly, explain the significance of uh, this agreement in terms of some of the challenges around accessing HIV treatment that uh, it will help to address. This is about creating the opportunity for more HIV patients in low to middle income settings to access innovative HIV therapy. We know that 70% of HIV patients in sub-Saharan Africa are on antiviral, antiretroviral therapy. But that's not enough, and it falls substantially short of the UN AIDS 1990 goal of 90%. Uh, by entering into these agreements, our aim is to lower the production cost for therapy and to ensure that more people who need uh, access to HIV treatment are able to get it. The agreements are part of our long-term commitment to forming partnerships to improve access through breakthrough medicines for those people who need them most. Now, tell us more about the drug itself and who qualifies to get it. We understand that um, it's for the treatment of adult patients only. Uh, correct. Um, once registered, the therapy will be used with other medicines to treat HIV infection in adults, uh, especially those who have not received HIV medicines in the past or it could alternatively be used to replace their current HIV medicines if their healthcare provider recommends they they do so. Now, all sub-Saharan countries will benefit from this agreement, and we know this is a region that's heavily burdened by the HIV epidemic. What was the picture like in terms of the availability of this drug, especially in the countries that are mostly affected? Well, this is one of the main reasons why we're entering into these agreements. Uh, We've seen that in the African region, uh, we have more than 25 million people living with HIV um, as of 2018. Uh, We also have the majority of new infections coming through uh, annually within the broader African region. And these are huge numbers, and we need to ensure that we reach out to the patients who need support and assistance. And we at, at, at MSD want to ensure broader access so that these patients who, are, who have historically experienced the disease and those coming on screen now in terms of new exposure to the disease have access to the latest innovative therapies. And these agreements potentially place in motion the, the possibility that these patients will receive such access. Now, Naren, how soon will we see the agreement practically translating into action um, for the benefit of HIV patients who need the drug the most? Our goal was to secure partners who can deliver the therapy to new markets as soon as it becomes available. With the signing of the voluntary licensing agreements, we've taken the first step. And the next step in terms of getting these new therapies to market lie in the hands of these partner companies. The voluntary licensing agreements are non-exclusive, which means that more companies could potentially be granted licenses to manufacture and supply uh, these innovative therapies within the the markets we've designated. And more markets could be brought under that umbrella as well, potentially in the future. So 
after the initiation of the first of this first step from the side of our company, uh, the, the next steps do lie in the hands of the partner companies in terms of the goal of getting the therapies to market as soon as possible. Now, just looking at uh, that, the fact that it's more than 80 countries that uh, will have increased access, um, you know, what's the reaction been like from um, those particular countries and, and their governments with, with the work that you're about to start? Well, we have uh, specifically reached out to many governments within our continent, within sub-Saharan Africa, to inform them about uh, this innovation from the side of our company to inform them about this important step in terms of responding to HIV, uh, the pandemic on our continent. And many of those governments have welcomed uh, this uh, this initiative. However, we need to do more. And we need to abide by our philosophy of patients first, always. We need to ensure that the partnerships we have in place and new partnerships that we will seek will ensure that these therapies get to the patients as soon as possible, not just by way of ensuring that we manufacture the drugs and land it at the ports in those countries, but by ensuring that we we have programs in place with governments, with NGOs on the ground, to ensure delivery of these drugs, to ensure that patients are able to access them as easily and as quickly as possible. And for this, we also need to remind ourselves that COVID has been a huge setback in terms of HIV treatment, in terms of vaccination programs that we've had, where governments have had to divert attention away from these in order to address the COVID challenge within their countries. So we're entering into this next phase of HIV response. Uh, In some cases, having to reestablish programs that were uh, doing very well in the past. So boldness is required strength of commitment is required and certainly as a company we'll be seeking partners that abide by uh, the values that we hold in terms of reaching out to the patient as soon as possible and getting those programs back on track so that patients don't suffer from the loss of treatment uh, that they've experienced during COVID. Naren, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Africa Rise and Shine. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day. Thank you, and to you too. That's uh, Naren Rao, Director of Policy and Communication in Sub-Saharan Africa at MSD, and he was joining us on the line. It's 7.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. A state capture commission of inquiry heard how some of the Gupta associates, Salim Essa, sent emails containing prepared statements and resolutions for the ESCOM board to influence the board decision. Former ESCOM chairperson Ben Ngubane gave evidence at the commission admitting that the board acted on some of the proposals in the emails. Tsepo Mungwai reports. Former ESCOM board chairman Dr. Ben Ngubani has conceded that the board may have carried out instruction from the Gupta Association Salim Essa Anawar. At the previous appearance, Ngubani has told the State Capture Commission that he believed that the email containing instruction to the board came from the Public Enterprises Director General Richard Silike. However, the commission's evidence leader, Bule Selika, refuted Ngubani's claims by pointing out that Selika had not been appointed to the position at the time that the email in question was sent. At least on the evidence we have, insofar as you say that businessman who was, commu- who was communicating with you here was Mr. Richard Selike, on the evidence we have, it cannot be correct. But if I've considered that. Okay. Yes, you have, you have accepted that. Thank now, you. if indeed it was to be found that it was Mr. Salim Essa right. on the probabilities, that would reflect, would it not, that he expected you to go along with what was written in, the, in, that, in that email. Is that right? It's correct. Yes. It would be correct. 
Commission Chairperson Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo expressed concern after evidence leader Advocate Seleka presented an email exchange between Tony Gupta and Nazim Hawa preempting the resignation of former board's chair Rizola Zodzi. It seems to me as I was taking you now thinking back about your testimony last time and you can tell the chairperson because what is what emerges from the documentation and I want to go specifically to the emails well the emails that are exchanged between Mr. Hawa and Mr. Essa putting together a draft statement that was meant to be read out by you or released by yourself. The commission resumes this morning with former Transnet Group Capital Legal Services General Manager Advocate Siabulela Mapoma scheduled to testify. I am Tepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. It's 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. In the headlines, at least nine civilians have been killed in the Moptu region of central Mali. Officials are blaming the attack on an al-Qaeda-linked jihadist. Nigeria's police chief, Mohamed Adumu, has ordered the unconditional release of all demonstrators arrested during protests against police brutality. And countries across Europe are tightening coronavirus restrictions following a sharp rise in cases. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Anne. Angola's President João Lorenco says... His country has lost up to 24 billion U.S. dollars under a former administration of Jose Eduardo dos Santos, adding that half, over half of that money was diverted through fraudulent contracts with state-owned company Senegal. He has made the revelation in an interview with the U.S. business newspaper, the Wall Street Journal. For more on this, Channel Africa's Kumbela Mujalele spoke to Belarmino Van Dunen, Angolan economic expert. And he says although Angolans are concerned about the slow pace of investigations into the stolen money, the president's efforts are yielding the desired results. If you can read in this interview, President Lawrence said that uh, he maybe is uh, 24 billion for uh, the oil, diamond, and the other infrastructure in the country. And he has now, Angola maybe have achieved for 4 billion is enough. Maybe we have to work, to work because uh, 4 billion in 24 billion is nothing uh, because the state has definitely recovered about 4.9 billion in cash and goods uh, so far, 2.71 billion in cash and 2.19 billion in real estate for the factory. But uh, I think we, Angola, have to continue to work with the international community. But while some organizations such as uh, the Transparency International applaud uh, Lorenzo's anti-corruption intentions, in their eyes, Angola should already be in a new era after his three years in office. They want to see more investigations and a number of prosecutions increase. Do you agree with this assessment? Is right, okay, because you know the difficult now is that we are work, working with the own uh, personality of Ebele. This is the difficulty the, uh, the rule part in Angola. So, President Lorenz wants to go step by step because you have the same person in uh, in judiciary, you have the same person in state, we have the same person in all sectors. So it's very difficult to work like that. Just this much to go step by step. Uh, we, I think that the president is in a good way 
So all of us, we have to continue to work because it's not easy. You're saying that uh, President Lorenzo is doing well uh, in terms of uh, recovering the stolen monies, but don't you think it will be his downfall if not much is being done in terms of investigations and uh, prosecutions of those who have uh, been involved in corrupt activities? be done in the right time, you know. We cannot cause what we can say, the chaos the, the, the in our state, because this problem is in own ruling party person. They are, are here in Angola working. They have responsibility, none of them. So it's my, it's my view that we have, and we need to go step by step, not to be emotional and say, okay, who will continue to, 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 to make this work that we are facing now? So I, I think step by step we will achieve our uh, goals. And just this must to, to go, but we have to be rational. Do not to break the structure of our state. Uh, we agree. The president has also said that uh, the state oil company Sonangol will be listed on uh, the stock exchanges such as uh, New York Stock Exchange soon after its restructuring. What do you make of uh, these plans? Uh, Sonangol is the, the principal revenue, revenue in our in our country. So if we have transparency, if we can put Sonangol in this all organization, if the state can um, can achieve more about in revenues. So it's important. But before we do that, we have to work internal. We have to reorganize this uh, important enterprise of our country. Is uh, in my view not only Sonangol, maybe uh, Diamond uh, Enterprise must also be there because it's important for 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 the state. It's important for our people. That was uh, Bellamino Fandunen, Angolan economic expert on the line from the capital Luanda, speaking to Kumbele Mujelele. WHO recommends 30 minutes of physical activity a day for adults and one hour a day for children. If your local or national guidelines allow it, go outside for a walk, a run or a ride, and keep a safe distance from others. If you can't leave the house, find an exercise video online, dance to music, do some yoga, or walk up and down the stairs. Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth to slow the spread of the coronavirus. For more information on the coronavirus, visit the World Health Organization site at www.who.int. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African Time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African Perspective.
At 7.38 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. COVID-19 has brought unprecedented human and humanitarian challenges. Many companies around the world have risen to the occasion, migrating to a new way of working. An architect company in South Africa, Savile Rao architects and designers conducted a survey on the new ways of working and found that 88% of people want to continue to work from home post-COVID-19. To further discuss this, Samora Mangesi spoke to Lita Miti Kamata, partner and attorney at a law firm in South Africa, Adams and Adams. I think it will be a very interesting uh, workplace. I think we've definitely um, at least the survey shows that we've moved away from thinking that a traditional play, uh, workplace has to be in an office. Um, I think the pandemic has uh, uh, challenged a lot of companies um, in the sense that we are now we now see that things that we didn't think were possible are possible. Um, we're having remote meetings without having met people personally, which generally um, is uh, a challenge in South Africa because people believe that they need to meet you, shake your hand, which we're not allowed to do. Um, so I think the post-pandemic workplace will look different. Um, it will not be as traditional uh, as we have been used to. All right. And uh, what purpose do you think offices will play in the future? Will companies still need office space if their employees are working remotely? I think they will. You know, I think there is a recognition, even from the survey, not everybody. I know the results are quite overwhelming, but... Um, you know, not everybody will not want to work with the office. I think, you know, what is prevalent is that especially for collaborative efforts um, where there's teamwork involved, it is better to have a common meeting place such as an office uh, where you can uh, work more comfortably and closely together without sometimes the challenges of power cuts, which uh, we are familiar to within the South Africa in South Africa, at least. Um, so there is a space, um, you know, for office, for offices, but it, it will look different. And the majority of persons who have been surveyed have had a very positive work-from-home experience and have enjoyed a better work-life balance. Now, does the law allow for one to permanently work from home if they want to? That is an interesting thing. Um, I think interestingly to note, um, just happening in the world around us, Microsoft um, released uh, a statement that they've made working from home a permanent um, selection for the or permanent option rather from the employees. I think we are definitely going to see uh, more of that. Um, and I think, you know, the, the results are overwhelming because you just have more time with your family um, working from home and you can be more involved um, with things that ordinarily you wouldn't if you were office fund. And how can people go about accessing more information on the survey? Um, I think they can go into our platform, which is adams.africa forward slash crama. Um, that is where we have, in particular, the discussion around this very survey and the results that it received. Um, and in that discussion, we have the participation of employment um, uh, lawyers who give their perspective on um, sort of the legal implications of working from home. That was Lita Miti Kamata, partner and attorney at a law firm in South Africa, Adams and Adams, speaking to Samura Mangesi. The World Health Organization says it will soon publish guidelines on how countries can hold safe elections during the COVID-19 pandemic. Countries such as Malawi and Burundi received heavy backlash from campaign for campaigning via big social gatherings amidst the pandemic. At least 20 countries, including Tanzania, Belize, Ghana and the United States, are scheduled to head to the polls between now and the end of the year. U.S. President Donald Trump has been criticized for continuing to campaign in person despite testing positive for COVID-19. Sophie Mugwena filed this report with advice from the WHO's Executive Director for Emergencies, Dr. Mike Ryan. Back on the campaign trail, this after testing positive for coronavirus and a brief hospitalization. But over the weekend, President Donald Trump held a mini rally at the White House Rose Garden. U.S. Public Health Services have very clear criteria in place 
for what represents uh, 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 the release of an individual from what might be isolation due to being infected. And the criteria in the US, Maria may outline them very clear. From WHO's perspective, we allow both testing and duration of, of, of a number of days since the onset of symptoms. Uh, both uh, approaches are used by WHO or offered to our member states as mechanisms. I believe, Maria, it's uh, 10 days from the onset of symptoms and plus three days from the onset of the last or the cessation of the last symptoms. Uh, and again, all countries have adapted that according to their national protocols. And therefore, we would not, uh, we wouldn't comment on whether any specific individual meets the requirements of their national protocol. The organization says it will publish guidelines for member states. Elections uh, do many things. Uh, uh, they're an essential part of our lives and they're absolutely central to how many societies live, survive and thrive. <clears throat> they're very important parts <clears throat> of the cycle of life. Um, however, they do tend to bring people together. We've seen many examples over the last nine months where elections have actually been held very safely and with uh, appropriate measures and have been, uh, been uh, straightforward enough to manage and implement. It takes effort. We've worked very closely in the past uh, in the same way we've done for all types of mass gatherings and we've worked on a risk management approach. You cannot reduce the risk to zero, but what you can do is identify and manage those risks, especially where in-person voting is the choice of the country. We don't specify to any country what the proper choice is for the type of election they need to run. That is based on their own risk assessment. But we do offer them advice on how to reduce those risks if in-person elections are the way forward. And in fact, we're working right now on finalizing specific guidance for countries who choose in-person elections, learning from the last eight, nine months as to what has worked in those circumstances, and we'll be issuing that guidance in the coming days. The WHO has called on member countries to comply with COVID-19 protocols. Sophie Mguid, Johannesburg. South Africa needs a national strategy to address the issue of homelessness. This is according to NGOs attending a commemoration of World Homeless Day in Cape Town. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, it was estimated that approximately 6,000 people are homeless in the city, but authorities concede that this number may have increased by a few thousand. Berenice Moss reports. 41-year-old Bertel September is one of approximately 8,000 homeless people living on the streets or in shelters in Cape Town. He says he wants to change his life and stop using drugs. September says he has tried numerous times to get into a homeless shelter, but that he always finds himself on a waiting list. He's been living on the streets for the past 18 years. September says COVID-19 has added additional strain to the daily challenge of living on the street. My family wanted to send me to rehab. I use Mandrax and I smoke Tacha. I don't use Tuk. But they are waiting for a mot. They are busy upgrading according to COVID. And I'm on the waiting list here. I want to leave these things because I can see. I'm not enjoying it anymore like I used to. But drugs is another story. The issue of homelessness is a global one. NPOs and NGOs attending a City of Cape Town gathering to commemorate World Homeless Day say South Africa lacks policy direction to address homelessness on a national level. Marlene Rousseau is the Executive Director of Women Lead Movement. Provincial governments across the country, local governments across the country is operating in absolute chaos because there is no policy direction in terms of what to do. And so part of the engagements, of course, was to hear from the NGOs, to hear about the models that they are employing. But what was very, very evident was that each one of these stakeholders, they were doing their own thing because there's no direction. They were not coordinating, they were not cooperating because there's no goal in place. The city, meanwhile, says it's in the process of revising its street people policy into a strategy following a stakeholder engagement two months ago. The aim is to provide for the needs of homeless people and to reduce their numbers. The mayoral committee member for community services and health, Sahid Badjuddin, says an additional three safe spaces have been opened up during the COVID-19 pandemic, which connects homeless people to services and employment opportunities. 
we may see well beyond 8,000 homeless people on, on our streets. And this is so very important, again, uh, exacerbated by COVID-19, which identified and really illuminated for us the gaps that exist in terms of the care that homeless people receive in, in our city and also the access to any type of shelter, whether it's the general shelter environment or specific shelter communities that cater for our LGBTI community, our GBV community, mothers with children community as well. There are just over 20 shelters in Cape Town and the city says it's engaging property and building owners wishing to sell so that the premises can be converted into more homeless shelters. I'm Berenice Moss in Cape Town. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, Cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Channel Africa. It's 7.50 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabi Soloho. Thanks, Lulu, and good morning. The World Bank has approved $12 billion in new funding for developing countries to finance the purchase and distribution of potential COVID-19 vaccines, tests, and treatments for their citizens. The financing plan has pledged to assist developing countries next year to help fight coronavirus. The number of cases across the globe has passed 38 million, with over a million COVID-19-related deaths recorded since the start of the pandemic. South Africa's Finance Minister Titumboweni has written to the National Assembly Speaker Tandim Dise asking for the tabling of the medium-term budget policy statement to be postponed by a week to the 28th of October. The tabling of the mini-budget was scheduled for next Wednesday. In a statement, the Parliament said Mboweni has cited what he calls recent complex decisions taken by Cabinet in respect of the 2020-2021 adjusted estimates and the 2021 medium-term budget expenditure framework, as well as the implications of the timeframes for the finalization of government's economic reconstruction and recovery plan on the budget process. President Sil Ramaphosa will table the economic recovery plan in the parliament on Thursday. Mbowena's request will be considered by the National Assembly's Programming Committee when it meets on Thursday. South African e-hailing service Bolt says a driver's strike did not have a significant impact on their operations. This after drivers staged a sit-in at the Bolt offices in Bryanston, north of Johannesburg on Monday and Tuesday. They say Bolt failed to meet its promise to unblock drivers who participated in the strike. But in a statement, Bolt says it told the protesters that if drivers wish to be unblocked, they need to send a personal email. Drivers have been protesting since Monday over the company's pricing system and safety concerns. The driver's spokesperson, Batu Gambelengwa, 
As a result of Bolt failing to honor its commitment to unblock drivers, drivers have decided to continue with their protest and are staging a sit-in at Bolt office. We have just consulted with public order policing. General consensus is now to go to Randbeck Police Station. We are going to go ask the station commander to, to, to invoke Section 4. It will force Bolt management to engage with us. Failure for them to engage with us, a warrant of arrest will then be issued for Gareth Taylor. Analysts in Kenya have projected a 10.9% jump in Safaricom's 2021 half-year profits chiefly driven by fixed service and mobile data revenues. According to a report by KCB Capital, this is despite a 4.3% projected drop in M-Pesa revenues for the first half of the telco's financial year that ends in March 2021, although they are expected to rebound in the second half after the end of zero-rated transactions. KCB says that they expect that M-Pesa revenue will be subdued. The Government Institutions Pension Fund of Namibia has called on its members to visit their employers' human resources offices to verify whether they are registered on the fund's system. This is to ensure that member information and that of their beneficiaries are up to date. The fund says accurate member information and updated particulars will assist in processing and paying benefits timelessly. The U.S. dollar is trading at 381 Nigerian Nara, 1132 Botswana Pula, 107.49 Kenyan Shilling and 28 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, Brazil, 1 U.S. dollar costs 5 rule 54 Russia, 76 rubles 92 India, 73 rupees 26 in China, a dollar is changing hands at 6 yuan 72 and in South Africa, it's a trading at a 16 rand of 50. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to euro. Gold is trading at $1,887 and platinum $865 per ounce. Brand crude oil $42.15 a barrel. From an African perspective. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Well, that wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za, WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327, or tweet us at Channel Africa 1. I'll take us to the top of the hour. For the news is Walewatu by Kajanin. Goodbye and keep safe. Where how to 
Come on. 